Well, um, here are the, the questions that we have given to the presenters that they're going to be presenting on for seven or eight minutes. The first one is this. What do you see as the most significant challenge or opportunity facing the North American church right now in terms of living more fully and faithfully into its God-ordained purposes in and for the sake of the world? So again, it's for, you know, for the sake of the world, right? The conference itself, the theme. So what's the biggest challenge slash opportunity available in your opinion? Question number two, what sort of theological imagination must we have to grapple with that challenge or opportunity and to give us one example or story of how you have witnessed that theological imagination playing itself out on the ground? Theological imagination, but then pedestrian street level, what are the stories and how is that working itself out? All right, let me uh, briefly give you the introductions for our, our uh, panelists, and then we will allow them to uh, present here. Uh, Lisa Yaboya, Laboya uh, is the lead pastor of the Southeast Raleigh Table, the newest worshiping community of Edenton Street United Methodist Church, a multi-site congregation in the heart of downtown Raleigh. She's a 1999 graduate of Wofford and an 04 graduate of Duke University. If you're a basketball fan, that's a pretty good March Madness week right there. Um, and uh, I, love, I love what she said. Uh, she, when asked, Lisa sums up her vocation through the lens of Mark II. I love this. She says, I'm trying to help people in the pews become less concerned about the holes that we make in our roofs and become more wholly restless about our friends who are bound to their mats. That'll preach right there. That's good. So that's, that's Lisa. Uh, many of you know Bruxy. Bruxy is a senior pastor of the Meeting House, a church for people who aren't into church. It is a multi-site and a Baptist congregation in Ontario, Canada, where thousands of people are connected with God and each other through a widespread house church network. Uh, Sunday services and online interactions are a big part of uh, the Meeting House. He's also the author of several books. Um, his most recent, Reunion, is an overview of the good news of Jesus for seekers, saints, and sinners. And he and his wife and three daughters live in Hamilton, Ontario. Joanne Lyon uh, is the ambassador for the Wesleyan Church and serves on many boards as board of directors through organizations representing the Wesleyan Church, the National Association of Evangelicals Executive Committee, uh, Christian Community Development Association, National Religious Partnership for the Environment, Asbury Theological Seminary, the Council on Faith, uh, and the World Economic Forum, and the president of the United States Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Uh, she holds a master's degree in counseling. Previous president. Previous president. Thank you. Uh, she has five honorary doctorates, has written several articles and publications, and uh, she has 10 grandchildren. She was telling me with great joy about her grandchildren. She has great wisdom, and here's how it's incredibly evident. She was chosen to be one of four national leaders to serve on the independent advisory group to investigate and report the Willow Creek situation. She holds a great deal of wisdom. Uh, so that is Joanne. And then lastly, Jim Bauckham. Uh, Dr. Jim Bauckham has served as senior pastor at Columbia uh, Church in Falls Church uh, in the inner suburbs here of DC for 10 years. He's a 17. This is an old bio. All right. You don't look that old either. So, um, and uh, he's worked with businesses, churches, nonprofits around the world, uh, served in many leadership capacities, chairman of the board of trustees for the John Leland Seminary, chairman of the board for the Spence Leadership Network, 
and on the board of directors of the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, he graduated from the University of Richmond, uh, holds a Master's of Divinity from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a D-Min from Princeton Seminary. So uh, why don't we just go right to left, if we could. So, Bruxy, I'm going to allow you to start here of answering those two questions, and uh, you are on the clock. Thank you. This is a privilege, privilege to be hanging out with you guys. So, uh, the first question is, what, uh, um, what's a challenge or an opportunity the North American church needs? Let me use a word that you may or may not know, and then I'll unpack it as part of my answer, and that's the word homothumadon. So, my answer would be that the church needs, and our greatest challenge is, uh, that we have a lack of homothumadon. So, now let me unpack the word. Homothumadon has become my favorite Greek word in the New Testament text. Does anyone know what it means? Uh, who, yes? Pardon me? One, yes, it's a, homo means one, or, or a singular. Uh, thumadon comes from thumos, which is a word that means intense anger or rage. Uh, it is actually a, a snorting, uh, growly, passionate rage. That's thumos. It describes the devil in Revelation and his attitude towards Jesus. It's, it's a word that means, I just, <laughs> that's thumos. And when put together with the word homo, it means one, it actually means a passionate, fierce, fighting spirit for oneness. And it is used positively to describe the New Testament church throughout the book of Acts. Sometimes it's just translated with one accord or sometimes it says they were together, which is such an insipid, uh, shallow English translation. And the church was together in one place. But it means this word that sometimes we just gloss by as together in the English is sometimes the translation of homothumadon, a passionate, uh, a rage for oneness and unity. Uh, you take away the homo, you just have thumos, it divides, it explodes. It, it, and, but it's taking all that passionate rage and saying, I will fight. I will, I will fight hard for us to be together as opposed to let anything separate us. And so the New Testament church is described that way. I thought I'd just read one place. Usually it's in the book of Acts. You, uh, Luke uses it, but the Apostle Paul does use it uh, just here and there. And one of the places is Romans chapter 15. He says in Romans 15, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and it's one of those phrases of with one mind is where in this case, in the NIV, homothumadon gets packed in there that you might, you might with a passionate rage for oneness give glory to God the Father through Christ. And it's interesting because the very next verse, which is verse seven, says, so accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. So when we think of, when the Apostle Paul thinks of homothumadon, of this passionate rage for oneness, his mind then, the next thing his mind goes to is so, so accept, embrace, uh, cherish one another the way Jesus has done so for you. And I find that this is something the New Testament church uh, models for us, but we lose it very quickly in the history of the church. 
We go to war against one another. We eventually go through the dark times in medieval church uh, and even, even the Protestant Reformation which gets the Bible into the hands of the average Christian and we thank God for the Protestant Reformation. Protestants then in following the Bible became just as violent as their Catholic counterparts. So they said, you know, sola scriptura, let's get back to the Bible. The Pope, we don't need to listen to the Pope. He leads us in the wrong direction. And you could blame the Catholic Church for going through a dark time and saying, yes, and the Pope was advocating for torture of heretics and for leading the church to war. Well, thank God we get rid of that nasty Pope and we just have the Bible. Where does that lead us? Same amount of war, same amount of torture, same amount of burning of heretics. It's almost as though we need a guide to help us understand our own guidebook. And the guidebook introduces us to our guide, who is Jesus, who helps us mine the truth out of the whole guidebook. And so we see that the church has this history of not only not doing homothumadon, but just doing the thumos part. Raging, doing the actually opposite of what the sign of the Spirit is supposed to be. We kill each other in the name of the love of Jesus. Uh, and then today, we say, well, we've repented of that. And actually, if you follow history, the Protestant church or the Catholic church never repented. They never laid down their sword willingly. What happened is that society became increasingly secular. And so the state would no longer do the church's bidding anymore. And so we just lost power. And then we said, we've changed. But without an actual willful laying down of the sword, while you still have power giving it up, <clears throat> but actually just losing power, praise God for the secularization of society, we might say, because God used the secular state to teach the, the, the church a lesson to open up our eyes that we should no longer use the sword to advance the kingdom of Christ. And, and so because of that, uh, we, we may still today be living with the residual attitude of those dark times where we would kill each other for the name of Jesus. We never fully necessarily repented as a church. Having lost power then, we may see that resurface. The same power, I have met with uh, Christians who I would call brother and sister who I realize if they had power would want me dead. I, I've, I've, I've interacted them with, with them on Twitter and I've met them in person and I realized the only thing that is keeping me alive is that the church has lost the power to kill. There are still within our circles, and some of them rise to prominence, there are Christian leaders who have rage underneath the surface, a latent anger that um, sometimes just masquerades as a passion for holiness when actually it may be uh, an unrepentant anger in the name of Jesus that that only does not become violent because we've lost the power. So my encouragement for us as Christians is to do some real soul searching and to say, are we, how, are we as peaceful and loving as we now uh, lay claim to, uh, or are we just powerless to be violent and get away with it? And so uh, this would be probably all happening at the subconscious level, but are, do we have the same seeds in us that want to condemn and divide? And one of the challenges then for us, I think, is to be far more intentional. Like homothumadon is not just rejecting thumos. We're not going to kill each other and we'll, be, we'll tolerate one another. Homothumadon says we will rage to bridge the gap that's dividing us. And whatever separates us, I will fight. I will wake up in the morning and say, how can I fight to be more unified 
specifically with my brother and sister who I have disagreements with, or we are part of a different race or gender or class, and how can I, how can I fight to, in some sense, the kingdom of Christ conquers new territory, and that new territory is always the space between us that divides us. That's how the kingdom of Christ conquers new territory. And so we say, I'm going to be a soldier on the front lines for the kingdom of Christ. I'm gonna conquer that divided territory and draw us closer. Um, that's my hope, whether it's how we present ourselves on social media. That means when we're talking about those Christians we disagree with, how we do that will be one of those areas where we can fight for unity uh, while still expressing our disagreement. Well, is it, to learn the skill of saying, which is a family skill, and we are brothers and sisters, of saying, I think you're wrong, and here's why, but I've also got your back as my brother and sister. Um, that's, I think that's our, our great challenge for us in this generation. So I'm, I'm hoping I can be part of a, a generation of repentance, of real repentance, over some of the attitudes, the unhealthy attitudes of the church. Yeah, great, thank you. Eight minutes on the dot, way to go. <laughs> Joanne, yes. You know, what, I, what I have are just some real examples of hap why don't we have the other people present and I'll be at the end. Sure, that's, that's okay. fine. So Joanne, you're the senior statesman at the table. You get the right to do that. So first of all, Lisa, you were, I thought you were profound today. And I want to thank, it's an honor to sit here with you. I didn't know you before now. So, and Bruxy, I thought you were just now profound. That was uh, pretty amazing. I just want to give you back the mic and let you speak for a while. And I feel like I have something in common with you because I think I also pastor a church full of people who aren't in the church. So um, I think we all do. <laughs> so that's part of the issue uh, today. And Joanne and I have known each other for a long time, served together in a number of capacities, including uh, in the formational days of Missio and what it would be, and on the board together where I served as the first chair of uh, Missio. So I have a passion and a heart for what we're doing and a passion for this mission of, of reimagining the church, a church reimagined for a world recreated. When Chris Backard and I were sitting at a, ta a breakfast table and came up with that statement, it just rang in my heart. Um, and the reason is because I think there are a lot of people thinking tactically and strategically, and that's helpful. We need all that. But there are very few people that are thinking about the underpinning theology that, uh, that moves us where it does, which led me to what I, a couple things I want to talk about today. I had a hard time narrowing this down because I could talk about 587 things that we could address here. The biggest challenge of the church today is living into a different world that we don't understand. It doesn't mean we've never been there before, but we haven't been there in our lifetimes or the lifetimes of generations that have come before us. Call it postmodern, post-Christian, you can call it whatever you want to. It's different, and uh, it's different in a lot of noticeable ways. So the church's response, I think, has to involve the recovery of some theological um, sophistication in some ways, and in more ways, just imagination, theological imagination. So the first thing that I think we've got to work on is recovering Trinitarianism. Um, I am really, really blown away by the loss of Trinitarian theology in underpinning what we do. Um, and I started to notice this a number of years ago, and at first I thought it was just me, and then I, I listened more and more, and, and it wasn't. So the number of songs I hear sung that confuse the identities of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or focus only on the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, uh, to the detriment of the other two persons of the Trinity, it, it, it amazes me. A lot of times it leads to a real confusion. We start out kind of singing about Jesus. Actually, uh, I was talking with a friend of mine in the audience about this the other day, and then we shift 
to something else, and it's, it's really confusing. And I used to think that the mistake was focusing too much on the second person. Now I think we've entered what, what has traditionally been called modalism, which is to, to believe that God sort of shows up in different ways, but there's a mishmash. We've lost the persons of the Trinity. A couple of years ago, we focused on the Holy Spirit. You did today. Thank you. You brought that to the table today. And I think that's powerful when we identify uh, or re-identify what's been lost in Trinitarian theology. Also, uh, losing Trinitarianism means losing the mystery of the faith. It means becoming too precise about what we know about God. And uh, there's a lot of loss about the way uh, that God works. But it has other implications as well. By the way, the other thing that tipped me off to this Listen to people pray today and notice how many of even the finest thinkers around you and finest ministers around you will close their prayers, in your name we pray. That is the oddest thing to me. So, so it's like telling my wife, uh, uh, in your name I love you. That's crazy. I mean, it, it just we pray to the Father in the name of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is something relational that's happening in the Trinity. And when the relationship of the Trinity is lost, the relational congruity of the church is lost as well in some of what you were just talking about. So uh, I, could go, I could go on and on all day about this one because it's huge for me. I really feared kind of dealing with it in the context of local church. Uh, so it's a difficult issue to tackle from the pulpit. Uh, but I did a, a, a sermon series on uh, Trinity, Trinitatis, uh, before uh, Christmas in my congregation. My people ate it up. They were dying for it. It was amazing how intrigued they were and how alive their faith became. So um, I have to move on or I'll just get stuck on that one. I think that in that same light, we need to recover an incarnational understanding of what we're up to. Uh, incarnating the presence of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, being the body of Christ. I frankly think we've gotten off track with some of our terminology. I really bought into, when Guter began writing and others, I was at Princeton then, I really bought into the whole idea of missional. I think it's lost a lot of traction. I think anything that is that new loses traction. It's just the next fad. Uh, What does it mean to really be incarnational and to incarnate the body of Christ in the world? Meaning to move from, we have bought into a notion of individualism that our culture has given to us, and in order to attract people, we have made the gospel quite individualistic. Even the best of, of churches, I think, have done this. And when we do that, we completely miss the true theology of Scripture. And I'm going to give you one example because it's controversial and it'll create heat, and I, I think that's health, healthy in a place like this. I struggled with the issue of what to do with marriage, and I'm sure some of you have too. Um, a lot. I mean, I, I'm so I'm progressive by nature. I tend to be loving and open-armed. I want to welcome everyone. I want to I want to affirm everyone. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be here. Uh, so I found myself going to Scripture to figure out what to do with marriage. And boy, was that a different issue than dealing with proclivities of human beings. It's a really different issue. And I I had heard all this stuff about there's no theology of marriage in the Bible, really, or at least Jesus doesn't put one forth. And then I saw, it just dawned on me as I'm reading Scripture, this is completely false. So uh, you've heard, probably heard before the Bible begins and ends with a garden wedding uh, in Genesis, and then again stated in the words of Jesus, and then again in Paul, and then in Revelation, a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, the two become one flesh. And I suddenly realized what my problem was 
which was that I had done the American thing or the North American thing or the Western thing, which was to begin with the individual and then to get to my theology of relationship. So what is sexuality first? What do people feel? How are they, who are they meant to be, etc.? And then what is marriage? The Bible does exactly the opposite thing. The first question is, what is marriage? And marriage is then the hermeneutic of the entire scripture for sexuality in human life. Now, you can disagree with me, and that's fine. I hope some of you do. But I will say, it completely put me on a different pitch. And I think when we think body first, and when the Bible's emphasis on body first, and then we move to the idea of where we go with other things, we are strengthened in some way, or at least we have a different discussion. And the third thing that really uh, strikes me is the church really needs to move from redemption to restoration. Um, I've heard this said that uh, we need to move from the cross to the resurrection. That's completely wrong. I've decided now the cross and the resurrection are one thing. They're one event. Uh, when somebody erases a chalkboard and then they draw something on it and you ask, was that one act or two? The answer was one act. They created a work of art. So when, when God through Christ in the cross erased the sin of the world, that's very simplistic, um, the purpose was not that we become tabula rasa, but that the image of Christ be rewritten on our hearts and minds. And I think if the church would understand itself and missio and whoever as restoring the world as the body of Christ, in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'd be deeply strengthened. And that's all the time I had or I could go on forever. So that's enough. Great. Yeah, you can hand that. To, yeah, great. Thanks. Lisa. Um, because I used all my rollover minutes um, across the street, I'm going to uh, keep this a little bit um, short and tight. Um, in fact, I'm going to read some of the notes that I uh, wrote down as I was kind of thinking through these two questions, and then I'll kind of um, piggyback on the things that I was saying when I was more clear-headed about three weeks ago. Um, and this is um, kind of how I uh, very briefly answered those two questions. Um, if we still hold to the belief that the church is the hope for the world, then the church must produce and shape people who look very different than the world. Very recently, I attended church meetings following the global gathering of United Methodists, and many of you might have known that um, we had our global gathering in St. Louis um, uh, last month, and um, the headlines kind of shared a, a good bit about what um, our gathering was like. Um, the tone in those rooms, so following up on our general conference, uh, the tone in those rooms filled with good church people was no different than what I'd find at a highly charged political rally or in the comment sections of a contentious Instagram post. Uh, we have to take seriously what it means to be Christ followers and to lead Jesus-soaked lives, um, to live into actual practices that make us more like Jesus when it's all too tempting to be covered in the dust of the empire. Um, you may have heard the term, um, you know, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, that, you know, we are those who follow Jesus so closely that we're literally covered in Jesus's dust. We watch the way Jesus eats, and so we eat like Jesus eats. We watch the way Jesus um, speaks, and we speak and bless the way that Jesus speaks and bless. We see what makes Jesus angry, and we also uh, find ourselves angry about those things. We um, see the ways in which Jesus engages uh, other individuals, and that's the way in which we also uh, choose to engage uh, individuals. And I think that the church, uh, in some ways, we have so kept our eyes on the ways in which the empire does work that we have fallen out of love with the ways in which Jesus might be inviting us to also lead our lives. So our speech is more empire um, 
shaped. Um, sometimes the ways in which we eat, like literally how we think about people being gathered around the table, um, sociopolitically, it, it's more shaped by the empire than it would be by um, by the kingdom. Um, I I know it just it seems so simple, but there are times when I feel very much convicted around: Am I trying to make really great members, or am I helping people to become good disciples? And um, there's nuance in that, but I think the nuance is is great. That if we believe again that the church is the hope for the world, that we live a life that is distinctly different, that um, our lives are are shaped and um, made new in ways that would be actually like that the empire would look in and say, "Gosh, the way in which they do their work, we want to do it like that. We want to bend in that direction." Then, um, then we actually have to live lives that are uh, that are shaped by the ways of Jesus and. It, it seems strange that I'm saying that out loud because you would think that would just be a given except that um, I think it's sometimes a little harder than, um, than it sounds. So, so in regards to kind of an imagination for um, the North American church, I, I typically tend to think about not just ortho but orthopraxis. Like I can't just live in my head because I have these people who I absolutely love and I want them um, when, they, when they leave on a Sunday morning or when we are together on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, how are they operating in the world that people would say there is something really beautiful about how this person shows up at CrossFit and they're less anxious than um, the person beside them. You know, peace is really compelling. You know, um, joy is really compelling. Blessing your barista is really compelling as opposed to some of the Amazon reviews that I see that I'm like, gosh, that's going to tear a person apart all because of a Roomba. Um, my, so my, 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 my thought as a practitioner is like, how do I, what are the practices that we lean into so that people's lives also lean in the direction of Jesus? And I think we have forgotten um, that we can't just be a people who uh, think about these things, but pistis to believe means you, your life actually moves in a particular direction. And um, I think as practitioners, how do we help people like, you know, move and how do I also keep myself uh, open and honest that my public and my private life match up, that I'm also moving in the direction of Jesus. So one of the things that I would just say I think is important for uh, in my particular church, local church community, is how we create um, a place for, for honesty and not a place of shame. So that people are actually willing um, to confess where they are holding on too tightly um, or bowing down to the idol of patriarchy or bowing down to the idol of whiteness or whatever it may be that people want to bow down to. Like, how can we, um, how can we create a space that people don't feel so shame? Because shame causes people to dig in their heels, to figure out a way to justify why they're, they're operating in a direction sometimes other than, other than Jesus, is how we create a space um, for, uh, to really be honest, like to name, to confess, and then also to, to, to repent and to, um, to create practices of confession and repentance that people, it's not that it's always easy, but people fr- feel freed up to say, there is um we are painting a picture of, of, of life that is so much more beautiful um, and life-giving than the one that I've been sold by the, than the, by the empire, but it's going to mean I'm going to have to die to something. And I think in order for people to die to something, they have to feel safe enough to, to, to die and not shamed into dying. I think you, you can't be shamed in, into that. And so um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about some of the examples, but... Um, I would just say, how do we create disciples and not just members would be, would be my thing. 
Great. Thank you. Joanne. Thank you. And I just wanted to conclude with this. These are wonderful. I, mean, I want to stop and have a chat about each one of these in a dialogue. They're marvelous. So thank you all. I'll, I'll be very quick. Uh, when I told uh, JR asked me to do this, I said, I, I'd like to just give just three examples that are really very unique and far out that give us an example of the rest of the world looking to us because they don't know where else to go. And so, so many times we are so embedded in ourselves that we do not hear what's out there that they finally say, you're our only hope. And so I want to start with the first example is, um, Jarrah noted that I was on the Council on Faith for the World Economic Forum. Now, as you know, the World Economic Forum is a powerful group that meets in, in Davos, Switzerland every year, and it's the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world that meet there. Well, they did a study not long ago and found out that by 2050, 90% of the world would be religious of some type. And so that made them think, and they did the algorithms, and Christianity would still be the largest, and then it was other religions that were there. But that also said to me what the humanity and the way we have been created is with the God vacuum that's there, that humanity has the God vacuum, so people are going to be religious of some sort uh, there. And so that made them think, my goodness, this is, well, we better create a council on faith. Now, they have councils on oceans, councils on, on everything in the world. I mean, they have like 50 councils, but they put a council on faith because they somehow began to think, hey, maybe there's something to think about this. So I happened to be invited to be a part of that council on faith. And we met in exotic places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi and all those places. Um, and so at one of the meetings, this was a couple of years ago, there was a, bit, a panel from people from around the world that introduced what we're living in now, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And you can Google that and you can find out that we're living in it, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, because it already predicted then, three years ago, what we're struggling now with Facebook and ethics and all these kinds of things. And they said it's the fastest revolution the world has ever known. And it, they talked about that day uh, that it moves too far ahead for ethics and morals. They have to catch up with what's happening. And companies, they talked about the fast fish eating up the slow fish. So we see constant mergers of companies all the time. And you can just read it and you can see. And then, of course, the whole technology world. And as time moves on, uh, the less important humans are because we have more technology and more machines and more robots. And all of this, I even said something about, well, don't people need to fix a robot? And they said, no, 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 a robot can fix a robot. So um, as it moved on, it became very evident that human beings were less and less important in the, as, as time moves along. And so it actually, after we heard that and we listened and et cetera, went back to, and there are good things about the fourth industrial revolution. I'm not saying it's all bad, but it's, it's, it's what, where life is happening very fast right now as we're living in it. And um, so we went back and, and the founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab uh, from Germany, came into our group, and I don't know his faith piece at all. But he said, I know you all must be really depressed, you know, when you hear about no need for human beings and all this kind of thing. And he said, but I want you to know, uh, and one of the things that they did talk about that this is going to create more tribalism, more nativism, more isolation of people. And he said, I want you to know that faith is the only safety net people will find in this. And as I listened to this, I thought, 
Is this not the call for the church to be what we're talking about today right here? Uh, the hope that, 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 that's reaching out, that this is the only safety net people will find. That's number one. Number two, um, I, uh, we've all, we, here in the United States, we've, we all are aware of the opioid crisis that is happening in every place. And uh, lots of things happening in the government, uh, talking about, et cetera, all kinds of things. But um, I, two things I, I want to share with this. One was I found it very fascinating that a medical doctor in New Hampshire, New Hampshire is one of the states that's had a high rate of, of opioid, the opioid crisis. And he looked, he, he made the statement, he said uh, he, he would be the medical examiner for the state and he would examine these, these bodies over and over and over and over. And he said, made the statement, this is the last young person that I'm going, whose body I'm going to examine, who's just died of an overdose of opioid. I'm hanging up my lab coat. And then his next statement, and I'm going to seminary. Because he said this has to do with spiritual issues. And I couldn't get away from that, and it was not long after that. I live in Indiana now, and the department in the state of Indiana that handled all the opioid crises people called me one day. He said, Joanne, could I talk to your pastors? He said, we need help from pastors in this opioid crisis that we're in in the state of Indiana. And he said, and particularly in the southern part of our state, which is a more rural area, there was the highest rate of HIV any place in the nation in this little community because of shared needles. And he said, I'm not asking the church to be a rehab center or anything else. I'm just asking if you could get pastors and the people in those churches to love these families, to, to meet with them, to help them. And he said, I'm not asking any, any specific skill, but we just need the church. He was a believer, and he said, and we need prayer. We need help with this. So I called together. We have several hundred churches in the state of Indiana. And I began to think, what a mission. This church, the churches in small rural areas who think that they're, they don't mount to, you know, they're not worthy of anything or nobody cares anything about them. What a, a message this could be. And so I've, I've, we worked at this and continued to do this. And then, actually, right here in D.C., one of the people at Health and Human Services contacted me, too, and said, we've got to get a message out. And he was talking about the whole United States. He said, well, actually, he said, who's your leader in West Virginia? Who's your leader in eastern Ohio? And he began to name the states that had the highest rate. I've got to talk to your leaders there, he said. I thought, is this not, again, a call to the church? And then the third one I want to bring to you is I served on President Obama's Council on Faith and um, Neighborhood Partnerships. I was part of the group on race and, and um, uh, uh, mass incarceration and, and race and justice pieces of it. And so we had a lot of discussion with the Department of Justice on some things. And I could tell you a lot of, I mean, a lot of stuff I didn't like. And we worked out and da-da-da-da. could go a long ways on that one. But, uh, but I'll never forget a conversation one day as we were trying to work out some issues, re particularly regarding mass incarceration and then racial healing that's needed. And we, as a long conversation, we were on the phone on that, and there were several of, of us that were faith leaders on this phone call. But finally, at the end, this, we kind of resolved it, and it was, turned out to be really good. And this attorney from the Department of Justice just dropped his voice, and he said, really, you all, I've got to tell you, you are the only ones that can help us. This is a heart issue. 
And I, those words stay in my, my mind uh, because I think about, yes, it is a hard, it, that doesn't mean it's simple. It's a hard issue, and then that means there's a lot we need to do with it. But the call to the church in these, just these three specific things says we have a mission before us that, that the world is saying we don't have any answer. Can you please help us? Wow. Wow. Well, I'm going to give each of our panelists just a moment to think about a potential question you could ask another panelist. And, uh, and I would just ask that when you're asked a question, if you could just keep it to maybe three-minute response or so, um, that would be great. But uh, we don't all have to be asked. We don't all have to ask a question. But I do want to give you all the opportunity based on what you heard from fellow panelists. Is there anything you say? Tell me more. What do you mean by that? So, uh, I'll keep, yeah, go ahead, Jim. Yes. So, I, uh, Lisa, I think you're exactly right about the church needing to look different. Could you flesh that out a little more for me? Uh, in the sense that I think that people, um, uh, there, is, there is a passion to the way we relate together. And I think it's important that people debate things, argue things in the life of the church. So sometimes I think we, we, uh, we, we just sort of put a brush stroke over this and say, we're just supposed to look, what does that look like? How do we deal with difficult issues? Um, how do people struggle together and show a different face to the world? I think I could answer that in a couple of ways, but I'd like to hear how you answer it. Yeah, so um, so that I'm not all over the place, I think I'm going to uh, maybe talk specifically in regard to um, issues of conflict, like when we really are, um, you know, obviously I'm coming as a United Methodist, <laughs> coming from St. Louis, and having lots of conversations around um, human sexuality, I would say... Um, we didn't always do it really well, you know, we didn't do it beautifully. We didn't do it in ways that I, I would want someone to watch us and say, oh, I want to do it like, do it like they did it. Um, in, in some ways, I'd say unlearn the ways that, we, that we've, we've done it. Um, you know, I, when you think about like when Jesus would have, um, would, ha would engage with the disciples, um, you know, these are human, these are human beings. Humans can be very human-y, I sometimes say. Like, we really know how to like, we can really be human. And remember when the disciples are having kind of an argument about who's going to be first and like, you know, basically kind of the hemi, like who's going to drive the biggest truck kind of a conversation. And, and, um, and Jesus checks them and just says, you know, um, the, the first will be last and the last will be, will be first. And um, I, I'm certain that that wasn't a very comfortable conversation, but there was something very honest and very direct about um, that conversation. And I um, oftentimes watch in the Gospels how after Jesus might offer a word that is very direct, um, a word that might challenge and convict us where we are, there's always then an invitation into what, um, what it could actually look like. There's a beauty when you choose to be last um, because you'll be elevated to one who is, who is first. So there's a beauty to denying yourself and laying down a cross because yes, you know, when you, um, when Christ bids us come, Christ bids us come and die, but there's going to be a life that is everlasting. Um, Jesus then offers something to say, what you think, what you're holding on to, like in this debate or in this struggle, um, pales in comparison to if you actually trusted doing it my way, the Jesus, the, the Jesus way. So I think, you know, if the, 
I think sometimes in the church, we don't even give ourselves an opportunity to, to trust, um, to trust that if we did it in the way in which we've been invited, that it might actually lead us to life. So we try to fix it, or, or I, sometimes I use this term, we step on God's toes before um, we ever get to see what God might be, um, might be up to um, behind the scenes. So I think that if we, could, for instance, could, um, could even draw near to each other when we had conversation, you know, whether that, whether you think of that metaphorically or actually even physically, like what would it look like for us to be in rooms together and to become, um, in my church context, local church context, we say, how can we learn to become comfortable with being uncomfortable and do it beautifully? You know? Yeah. How can we, how can we fight fairly? I mean, I think, you know, scripture shows us how to, how to fight fairly. So it's not that we become mamby-pamby or that we sugarcoat things. It's just that, you know, how can I actually engage in conversation with you that I don't, it's not about be, being petty or one up. I mean, we say that we don't keep a record of wrongs. Boy, I, that's something that I don't know that we've done very well as, you know, um, the church. We, we love to say who gets the W and who gets the L. I think if we just if we, if we just trusted, if we just trusted that the ways in which we've been invited to, uh, to engage, that we, we won't die, um, that there, there really will be, there really will be life. Mm-hmm. Great. Anyone else have a question for another panelist on our panel? Oh, he wants us to ask it too. They ask that. <laughs> I have one for Joanne, first of all. Is there anything you don't do or haven't done? <laughs> This is an amazing, uh, <laughs> you packed a lot in, it's amazing. Uh, uh, I, my, my real question is, what have you found continues to inspire you? You have given a lot of yourself and continue to do so for uh, so many important things. Is, it, is there a, a recurring, whether it's a story from scripture or a theological concept or personal encounter or... Is there something you keep cycling back to that becomes kind of what you draw on for energy and inspiration? Well, I um, guess part of it is I just always believe in hope. And uh, that hope, there is hope that, that, that things can change and can be as, as Jesus intends them to be and the kingdom of God. So it's pretty much the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, I just have hope that, and then the power of the Holy Spirit that brings us. And I'm so glad that uh, Jim talked about the Trinity because I agree with you on that. We've, we've, we've lost those, the, the, trin- the Trinitarian peace there. And so that's, it. I guess, hope is, is, is the peace. Yeah. And I, I like to think of the three theological uh, uh, virtues of faith, hope, and love. And I tend to think of hope as that, that imagination of where God places that it can be, uh, uh, faith is the engine of the train that goes, and love are the tracks that get it there. Um, I, I tend to be so practical, and I love the, the what is it, the one, one rage, or the one, yeah. If, if I came to you and said, what's a practice that I could put into place to help people flex that muscle to, to do that, what would you tell me? Uh, uh, there's a few that I, I mean, I've been trying to start with myself over the last number of years, and one is the discipline of speaking well about the people you disagree with most. 
um, to see their humanity, to see the good that's in them, even though on this particular issue you may see them as the enemy over that issue, to see the fullness of their humanity. We've gone from villainizing people to really even demonizing our enemies on any particular issue. So we dehumanize and we, they're the sum total of who they are. The way we tweet about them or talk about them behind their back seems to be, they just become emblematic. Their personhood is only a, a, a shell of an emblem for the, the actual person we seem to be relating to, which is just the sum total of this, uh, dis this disagreement of the, of the issue. And um, so uh, at our church, one of the things we've talked about this with the congregation is that when, when someone comes to you from another church, sometimes, I mean, hopefully we are growing through evangelism, it's been our passion, but when, we get, when you get transfers from another church, Sometimes they've moved in the neighborhood, but sometimes they left another church because something negative has happened. And it can be a feel-good moment, to be honest, for congregation members and pastors. When someone comes and says, well, that Baptist church down the street, I'll tell you, I really had a hard time there because, and there can be a sense to, to, to feed on that story as a way of feeling good about our current congregation. And we've said real healing will be when we help those people be able to feel well and speak well of the church they left. And maybe they need to be at our church for a season of healing, but can we then help them to see and help, help us not to feed on that energy and then help them to begin to see the beauty of what God is doing in that church, even if over something they disagreed. So it's, it's uh, both an online social media discipline, but it's an in-person conversational discipline where we can tend to feed on the wrong, the wrong energy. What a great practice. Yeah, is there any other question the panelists would like to ask them, of them, the other panelists? Or we can, if not, we can kick it to... Okay, why don't we do this? Why don't we just take one minute... Here's got a hand. Yeah, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. You'll be our first question. Take one minute, and I'd like you to turn to one or two people around you and just say, this is the one thing that I heard something the panel said that's really, really brewing in me right now. All right? Go ahead and do that. Ready, go. All right, here's what I'd like for us to do. I know we could keep talking, but I also want to give you the opportunity to ask our panelists uh, a few questions. So if you could, again, just very brief, that's going to fit within a tweet. So just very briefly, if you could ask the question, then I'll repeat the question, and then if you want the whole panel to answer or just one individual, just identify that. So just feel free to stand up and ask your question. Yes, yes, we'll start with you. Yes, sir. Great James from Common Ground in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I really appreciated your three points. Uh, I felt like very practical on the neighborhood and the incarceration and race health. Second one, very practical on the opiate crisis. The first one with the fourth revolution, I really wanted to see if you could flesh out, is the crisis loneliness? Is the crisis something else? Could you speak to what the crisis is? It's not as practical as the other two were. Okay, yeah, so just to repeat the question, if you didn't hear that. So what is the crisis of the fourth revolution that Joanne was referring I, to? Loneliness would be an alone, uh, loneliness and aloneness. Uh, and so then, therefore you seek who you're like. Tribalism, uh-huh, the whole tribalism piece. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Who else? What other questions do you have? Yes, Luke. This is for Dr. It's about theological imagination and how that plays itself out on the ground. You talked about the recovery of the Trinity. Yeah. How does that theological imagination play out in Christian practices? Yeah, so I, I just would, you know, there's so little time up here. I was, just, I was just giving an example of where 
where this blows us, this messes us up. This blows the church up. So, so when you, we often will say what Lisa, in fact, I think we typically say what Lisa said, which is, well, we're being so human. Like, so when we're uh, uh, beating up on each other, whatever we do, we're being so human. Um, and then what is Jesus? Well, since we're, we've confused the whole Godhead, since, since there's no distinction, Jesus must be superhuman. He is a superhuman uh, a form of God that came, uh, was presented to us. That's completely biblically wrong. So Jesus is not the superhuman. Jesus is the human. You and I are subhuman because of sin. And, and it is the subhuman components that sneak in and that we absolutely justify by saying we're only human that, that mess everything up. But Jesus is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. That's what Paul says. He is what creation was supposed to be. He is what Adam was supposed, he's what all of us were created to be. He's not unattainable. Um, he, he is the picture of the image of God planted in human form. So that's one place. And, and another place would just be to, to recapture the, the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. You know, what we have done, if, if we do talk about Trinity, we typically do it in economic terms. And that actually is a theological way of seeing the Trinity instead of ontological terms, the identity of community. So we completely lose the community piece and we start, to, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he gives each of us spiritual gifts. So of course, my people start to ask, well, could you explain to me the difference between talents and spiritual gifts? And my answer is always, no, can you? I mean, who cares? I, who even cares about that? Let's just, let's just believe the Holy Spirit is working and just do what we feel called to do and believe we're empowered to do it in the age of the Holy Spirit, the era of the Holy Spirit, to restore the world in Jesus' name. This mission of restoration is extending uh, everything that's lost in the creation is regained in the resurrection, everything that's lost in the fall from the creation. Um, and, and just understanding what it means that, the, that Jesus came to show us what the human looks like, to show us what the world looks like. The Holy Spirit is here to empower us now to push forward the restoration of the world. And the church, what is the church? Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look this way sometimes because we're only human. But the church is the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth. It's the first picture of a restored world. Um, I don't know if I've gone far enough there, but it's amazing if you really begin with the right theology and you start unwrapping it. It's amazing where it takes you that's very different from a, uh, a, a sort of a, an experiential model of, well, here's where we are, what are we gonna do about it, how are we gonna get more people, how, whatever you wanna do, how are we gonna change this, how are we gonna change that? What's the spirit moving us to do? I, that's why Lisa's message was for me the highlight of the, the morning, or the after, wherever, whatever time of the day this is. Yeah. Great. Uh, Bruxy, I have a question for you. We can think of 10 poor examples of homothumadon. Can you give us a good example of people who are like doing it really well? Mm. Examples of the church, whether in history or current day, that are really homothumadoning right now. Sure. To the glory of God. Sure. Can I, I'll give you one example from my life recently. A couple of years ago, um, it starts with an anti-homothumadon, just a thumadon uh, example. Uh, a couple of years ago, a gentleman uh, started preaching and blogging uh, against me as a heretic from a church not far from ours. And, um, and, and he had never contacted me, so when I found out about it, I called him and said, could we get together and talk and just have some face-to-face -face time too. The challenge with 
this is a version of the thumos, the challenge of jumping straight to the heresy declaration that that person's a heretic is then that person lets them off the hook of any brotherly face-to-face dialogue. So it's a, it's a brilliant maneuver if you just want to be a jerk. So, so, you, so when someone says, don't you think you should talk to that person to clarify what you think they believe, they can say, they're not my brother, so that teaching of scripture doesn't apply. They're a heretic, and we don't get together for tea with heretics. So it only increases the distance. If you can get to the heretic maneuver quickly, it then gives you an excuse not to actually do in-person investigation of what they may actually believe. And I've seen that maneuver many times online and in person. I became victim of it a couple of years ago, and it's been ongoing now for a couple of years. Um, but what was a, a, a beautiful thing was that uh, the Gospel Coalition came to my rescue. What? Um, <laughs> I, so I'm, a, I'm an Anabaptist, which would put me, uh, I'm very different to the Gospel Coalition. So. <laughs> Um, and, uh, but the Gospel Coalition Canada, in partnership with America, they got D.A. Carson's input on this, and they started doing a series of articles that really amounted to a heresy trial for me, in, uh, published in uh, Gospel Coalition Canada's blog, uh, a series of article interviews where they would ask me basic questions to try and discern if I'm a heretic. Um, and at first, people reading this were saying, aren't you insulted and offended that they are treating you this way? But I knew behind the scenes what they were trying to do. They're speaking uh, their Reformed brother's love language of heresy hunting and then came to the conclusion We've done our due diligence, and they had this line, Bruxy Cavey's not a heretic, he's an Anabaptist. And, um, and that was the big conclusion of this four-part series article. But it was then their way to turn to their fellow Reformed friends and say, lay off. And that, that was an amazing investment because they also drew down heat from the very conservative Reformed crowd who... I mean, it's interesting. I, I see the Gospel Coalition as the conservative folk, but I realize that there are conservative folk who think the Gospel Coalition is liberal. And so they've drawn down a lot of heat but they, because of that. But from, there was no reason they had to do that, but they did that to step in the way. And it is when I think, when, when, it is when you step in, when you don't have to, I mean, when you're being victimized for whatever issue in your life and you have to decide, you're, you're pulled into it, you can't escape it. It's, it's when the person who doesn't have to be involved, they could look the other way, they could keep walking, actually makes it their business and draws heat down on themselves. And that happens online every day and it can happen in, uh, you know, it's the schoolyard bullying uh, advocate who steps in. There is a beauty in that that is so healing because I think, hey, you guys didn't have to do this. God bless you for b- b- pulling down heat on yourself. So I, that's really taught me to be on the lookout for those who, and instead of looking the other way, get involved and advocate for those people who are getting picked on. Beautiful. Who else uh, has a question? That's great. I could ask more, but I, I don't want to hog the mic. So who, anybody else? Yeah, Wendy. Can you, it's, can you just rephrase the question? Being missional is losing traction, not its way. Um, so I think the missional corrective was really important is uh, sort of a, the notion of turning the church inside out, if you want to call it that. 
But it, it's become uh, incredibly strategic in its language. It's all about what we do and how we do it. That's, that's important stuff. But, but less in what it's grounded in. And uh, I'm, I'm telling you, anytime we lose the mystery of, of being God's people and what we're doing, we lose the power of it. The power is in, in what God is doing through us, not in what the church is able to accomplish by itself. So there's, uh, to me, uh, there's a little too much of what the right kind of church does the right kind of way versus what God is in empowering us to do, how we are incarnational in the world, how we are incarnating the presence of Christ in the world. We are the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'd like to add to that. Uh, I'll just give you an example of where I think, I believe it, the missional piece, but how far it's gone. And recently a young uh, person said to me, uh, they were talking about another organization that does a lot of church planting. And they said, you know, they've got that down so pat, you could plant churches and not even be a Christian. That's worshiping systems. Yeah. Well, you think of another question. Uh, Joanne, I have a question for you. Uh, Bruxy, you said, what, what haven't you done? Uh, you certainly have had a great deal of influence. You continue to. Um, this is a little bit of a vulnerable question, but how do you stay humble? Me? I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm humble or not. I don't know. She's humble. <laughs> if you know her well, I mean, she's just a regular person you deal with every day. I, I, she is humble, so now you can answer the question. <laughs> I don't think I can. It's kind of like not long ago I was asked to write a chapter in a book on selfless leadership, and I thought... Well, if I start talking about how selfless I am, <laughs> I missed the point totally, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I, th I, I think, I mean, I, again, to talk about how proud you are of your humility is obviously stupid. Uh, but um, I, I just keep thinking, you know, this great mission that God's put before us and where we are and just, just stay focused on that. Uh, and, 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 you know, you're going to be successful at times. You're going to fail, too. Uh, so how you handle your failure is probably more important than how, than how you handle your success. Uh, but then I think also how you handle your success can make you feel so powerful that uh, then you uh, have already lost. And, and when you feel powerful, then how you treat other people becomes very difficult. Uh, and I've observed some of that in some really uncomfortable ways of people uh, with their power. And that's where we see, I think, as we've seen across the church now, all of the abuse things is about power abuse um, and, um, uh, and the differentials in power um, that take place. Yeah, who else? Can we continue on this idea of power and power abuse? Um, I would love for each panelist, if you feel comfortable, um, Joanne, you and I were talking about the idea, the concept of meekness uh, earlier today. Uh, Bruxy, I've heard you speak on meekness about your St. Bernard, which is a beautiful image, correct me if I'm wrong, that the idea that the St. Bernard, could, your, your pet could overwhelm you, but instead uses her power for others, not for itself. Is, am I catching that right? Yeah, it's a real gentleness. Yeah, a gentleness. 
So I'm curious, you know, meekness is not weakness, but restrained strength. It's power under control. So in an abusive power situation, have you all seen examples where meekness has occurred as a blessing to the church for the sake of the world? How does meekness come into play when we talk about leadership and church and for the sake of the world in this current moment we're in in culture? What is, how have you unpacked meekness or where do we need meekness exhibited moving forward? Well, I'll start. I think um, one of the things that, and, and J.R. were talking about this before you all came in, regarding meekness, that we have a misunderstanding of the word meekness. And uh, William Barclay, in his uh, commentary on meekness, talks about meekness is being angry when injustice happens. Oh, that's a very interesting thing. So, it, so there's a certain powerfulness, in a sense, in meekness, but it's power in the right way. Um, and uh, so I think, I think, first of all, is trying to understand the definition of meekness. Um, and because the beatitude is that we'll inherit, if you're meek, you'll inherit the earth, my goodness. Uh, and so I, I think it's to get, getting that right. And then I think meekness is about lifting up the vulnerable and, uh, and Jesus caring for the least of these. I, I just want to throw in here a very fascinating opportunity that I had a couple of years ago, and that was to meet with Iranian religious leaders, that's Ayatollahs and Muslim, and Muslim scholars from Iran, and what they wanted me to speak about was how, and, and it was, there were other, there was the Abrahamic dialogue, so there were Jews and, and, and Protestants and Muslims in this, but they wanted me to talk about how we believe, how Christians believe in uh, Jesus' words, why we practice, how and why we practice Jesus' words in caring for the least of these. And so I think that's, a, that's, that's that, that meekness piece of Jesus uh, that, that comes out in, in that way. And it was a very fascinating conversation. Um, and I, you know, talked about the Holy Spirit and talked about you know, We could talk about what we believe in this. And, uh, that, that con- and it didn't mean that they didn't, the, the Ayatollahs didn't believe that either, but they needed to hear it from another context of what that was. And it's been interesting. I've been in other dialogues with these same folks and there's this relationship that's now developing and this, this, this uh, camaraderie, in a sense, happening. But, but meekness is something we don't talk about. We talk about leadership a lot, all the time. And in many conversations, most recently, that I've had regarding leadership has been, I've never heard anything that connects it with lordship or connects it with holy living uh, or meekness. And so I think it's a time that we need to revisit the whole subject of leadership in other ways. Yeah, who else? Well, I, the, so the, the words that are biblical taken out of the context of their own day become problematic. Meekness is one of them. Power is understood so differently today than it was in the day uh, that, that the New Testament was written. It's hard to even begin to talk about it. Uh, Max Weber, you have to be a student of Max Weber to understand our notion now of accumulating power, that anybody can do it, anybody can become powerful, is so different than, you know, in Jesus' day, a person was born with power or they didn't have it. That's, that's the way it worked. You didn't ask questions about it. You didn't worry about it. There was a stratification of the economy. That's the way things worked. 
So when the Bible talks about power, deutimus, it's the power of God shown through human beings. It's the power of God working through people, and meekness is the responsible use of that power. In the biblical terms, I would say uh, that it's the responsible use of relationship and influence. It's those two things. It's, it's, and this, again, I'm telling you it's rooted in the Trinity, but I don't have time to talk about it that much. It's the whole relational notion of what it is to, to be God's people on earth to represent the relationship of the Trinity and to relate to one another as equals. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. They're equal, but with different function. And that, that relationship is the pattern for us. We, are, we regard every person as our equal. And the responsible use of relationship and influence means that we're not seeking to lord it over them, as the New Testament uh, says, or as Jesus said. Uh, but instead, we're always looking, uh, when possible, to empower others and to give it away. So I think that responsible use means raising pe- other people around you. If you have the opportunity to give power away, give it away. If you're a pastor, give it away to your people. Give it away to lay leaders. Give it away to your staff. Give it away to other people because it's really, really, because we are subhuman and we get really full of our subhumanity. And that's just, that's just subhuman nature. By the way, that's the way we all say it about from now on, subhuman nature. Um, we're, none of us is immune. So you've got to check yourself. You've got to surround yourself with people who, who are really just not afraid to, to be in your grill in the most Christian of ways. Yeah. Say something, and I want Jim to answer this because Jim pastors a church here in town, and you will have sitting literally on the same pew people who would be uh, way to the right and people who would be way to the left politically in this city. How do you pastor those folks? Uh, With a lot of prayer. Um, So I don't know if I would say that we typically get people way to the right and way to the left. We tend to get people who are center right and center left. And actually, if you understand Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. is, for the most part, a center-right and center-left town. Um, So you you find people who don't like, this is not a place of extremes except for people who come in from outside to try to make it so. That's kind of intriguing. Uh, But we will have somebody who was on uh, President Obama's cabinet sitting on the opposite end of the pew from somebody who is on President Trump's uh, cabinet, and neither of them are demons, no matter what you think. They are, they are seeking to use their influence well and responsibly, um, but you've got to be able to teach them to dialogue and to, to fight fairly and disagree fairly and to be able to talk through, things through in a civil way. Uh, the church should be a place where we can have civil conversation about anything and uh, be challenged on anything, and, and it should be okay. Uh, so I, I like to think we model that. I think we're unique in that way. I think Columbia is a pretty special place, but there are lots of really special places. I don't know. I don't really know how you do it. Um, but I will tell you, you don't do it by not being a leader. You, 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 if you're going to take meekness to mean that you back up, that doesn't give any space for people to operate under. And so what you want to do is raise up core of people who provide room in which there's, such, there's enough health and stability that the littlest thing's not gonna rock the boat and tear the body of Christ up. Um, but in some places, the littlest thing tears the body of Christ up. There's something wrong with the relationship there. It's not the issue. It's the relationship that surrounds the issue. So how do you lead in that? Good Lord, I don't know. I don't really know. Because leadership, you said that. I don't know. 
I, I really don't know. Um, and I'm not even sure I do it well. Uh, so um, I do the best I can. I, I think, I, I don't know. I, I've got 50 answers to it and none of them are quite right. I think I try my best to learn from others who, do, who lead very well and who are better leaders than I. And I try to surround myself with really great leaders and, and to give them a lot of, to delegate, not task, but power and responsibility, to delegate authority. And to say, and I re- but I really don't know how I do it. And, you know, you work, you work with me. He offends equally, and he prays for equally. So the Sunday that Trump became president, or the Sunday after he prayed for him, and the Sunday after Obama became president, he prayed for him. And when something, when something's an issue, he, he doesn't let it become a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. He always comes at it through scripture. And so he ticks, a conservative walks out tip, and a liberal walks out tip the next week, and, and every week. Sometimes on the same week. <laughs> so I, I asked for. He's an equal opportunity. I asked for permit. I asked them for permission to do that, and essentially what I say is, look, these things were justice and ethics issues, biblical issues, long before they were ever political issues. And so let's deal with them as, let's take them out of the political realm for a minute and put them on a shelf, turn them around and look at them in 3D and think them through carefully and then go back to the worlds in which you've been called to have relationship and influence. And, and if, if I deal with it in such a way that makes you angry, give me permission just to, be the, to get under your skin a little because I love you. And, and they know that and I think people, after 16 and a half, almost 17 years, people just, they're okay with it. I, I don't, it takes a long time. You know, I say here uh, that in order to gain any traction, if you're going to be a pastor in D.C., so if you ever come to Washington, D.C., you have to outlive a full presidential two terms. It's eight years. You, because they see leaders come and go. So people always ask me, man, you're pastoring in D.C., you, must, you guys must fight all the time. It's almost the opposite. In their view, eh, people come, people go. He'll be gone soon, just relax. She'll be, and it's a different group saying it at any given time. So, so I, I, just, I just think that um, you've got to gain some longevity and trust, and then you have to, you have to not, and you better tack, you cannot stay away from these issues. If you believe in this day and time, you're going to lead a church and stay away and, and dance around these issues. It's not going to happen. You've got to go directly in, deal with it as honestly as you can, say you could be wrong, that you're working it out as you go, just like everybody else is, and open the door for a lot of conversation. But it's a lot of fun. I mean, frankly, that's a, that's a ton of fun. It just is. One last question with a very quick response from our panelists. So, yes, we're bumping. Sure. I think I was starting to reflect on this conversation. It seems like we are talking through the lens of people with power, whether it's with social power, with political power, with institutional power. And I want us to maybe reframe the conversation to what are we actually asking for people without that power? So a couple of the things that I've heard are losing power is the same thing as laying down your sword when you still have power. And are we asking people to trust that someone 
restored and what does that look like for people. We talked about um, we talked about asking people to repent and creating spaces where people will be able to share what they're holding on to without shame. But are we asking people to trust that there's going to be something for them to hold on to? When we've consistently shown people that sometimes there isn't something to hold on to, or sometimes we encourage people to trust the church or trust their community, and their community hasn't really shown up for them. And so just thinking about some of the things that you all have shared about what it means for us to be the people of God, I've heard it talked about through the lens of leadership, but what are we asking people who don't have the same amount of power that we do on how to do this work of following God, following Christ, and we've now been a lot of attention to which part of the Trinity I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so I'm really sensitive about that. But just really wanting us to, what does that mean? What are we asking people? Are we asking people not to say something when someone maybe shares about how our identity is not significant? Or when it's not being talked about in the pulpit, what does that mean for people without power? Wow, it's like, that was supposed to be a quick question with a quick answer. That's like another hour, right? That, that's such a good question. a good question. So could you briefly answer It is, answer but let that? me follow up very quickly and then yeah. pass the mic. Yeah. I will say I do think I'm dealing with that because, first of all, I would say that we create spaces in which we give permission people to speak up no matter who they are. So no matter what perceived power they have. But I will tell you, it is always going to be impingent upon the person who has perceived power to lay it down. You can't. In our society, we tend to act like those who have not been empowered, it's their job to pick it up. That can't be done. So for example, in the context you talked about race, just briefly, it, you know, with my white privilege, it's my responsibility to lay that down. You, you can't, there's nothing that you can do with it. And then I have to empower and trust other people around me. And we could go on and on. I'm a white male pastor of a tall steeple church in the nation's capital of the most powerful society, the wealthy society in the history of the world. It is my job to lay it down. That's justice. So somebody else can take it up. Now, I know that doesn't completely answer your question, so you say, what do I do? Just, just if you're in my place, just use your voice until, until you're given more and more voice. But it's, it's our job to give voice to those who don't get heard, right? I think that's the best I can understand it. I don't make that a complete answer. I just think it's the best we can do. Anyone Maybe somebody has panel? a better response. You know the panel very briefly? Because it's a great question. It's a great question. I have so many thoughts. And I'm, I was actually going to say, I was wondering if we could maybe just chat for like 10 minutes after this. Because um, I, I, yeah, my, my, head, my brain is like swirling right now. Um, because I think your question... Um, boy, it it hold, it holds a whole lot, and I, and the reason why my head is swirling is because as a, a black female clergy person of a um, still majority culture church, <laughs> this whole sometimes power dynamic it's a it's a real interesting thing about I walk into the room and even though I have a particular title. <laughs> I know the wealth gap. Like I know, like I, you know, and, and how to be honest about those things. Anyway, I just if we could just chat yeah. afterwards, I'd love yeah. to talk. It's a great question, and I want to encourage you, like and anyone else. The whole point of these forums is to kick more conversations into gear. And so, over dinner, talk about them. You want to talk to some of the panelists if they're free? Do it. Not just tonight, but the next few days. So, thanks for joining us. And can we thank our panelists for our time today?